0: I want to invite the rest of you to join me in opening your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll be in the 7th chapter of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs. Psalms would be roughly the middle of your Bible. Then you can find Proverbs and then you can find Ecclesiastes just to the right of there. I want to begin this morning in introducing the chapter by talking about celebrities. We love celebrities. We think they're everything. We treat them like they're authorities in all matters. Oftentimes, but what typically happens is the more you live, the more you see in life, the older you get, the more you realize celebrity isn't everything. Typically, you become more realistic about celebrities, uh, if not pessimistic about celebrities. Uh, Maybe you've, you've gotten to know someone who's famous, and the more you get to know the person who's famous, you realize they have issues too. They don't have everything in life figured out like it may have appeared on the big screen. Some of you have gotten to know some famous people, and while you may like them more once you get to know them, more than ever you realize that they have their issues too. Or even if you've never gotten to know someone famous, tabloids here, tabloids there, we know more about celebrities than they want us to know, and that... It's not all perfect. They don't have it all figured out. They have their relationship issues. They have their financial issues. They have their integrity issues. And you don't have to be very old if you're paying attention. If you're just watching, you'll see that, yeah, it's true. Celebrity is one thing, but you become more realistic if you have your eyes open and you're paying attention. It's not just with people in Hollywood either, whether it's authors or intellectuals, athletes, Musicians, leaders, billionaires, you name it, cultural icons, once you stop and think about it and you pay attention or you get to know them, prove to be having the same problems the rest of us have as we look for ultimate meaning in life, lasting, genuine, sustainable Happiness that will last through thick and thin that will cut through everything else. I have Happiness I have joy and it's unshakable and nothing can remove it from me And we realize that they don't have it either They don't have it either even though it May have looked that way And that makes me think of Ecclesiastes. It makes me want pastorally to have you think of Ecclesiastes to be more sober minded, to be more honest and 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 watch and pay attention. And as you're so drawn in, and you say, if I only had what that musician has as far as fame and fortune and, and spouse, I would be happy. Makes me think of Ecclesiastes because Solomon is a cultural icon. He is known for having more money than anybody. He's, more, he's known for knowing more than anyone. He's world famous when he writes for his mind. People would travel from other continents to come in here and sit at the feet of Solomon, the rich sage, the wise man. And he holds himself up in Ecclesiastes as a cultural icon. And then he holds a baseball bat in the other hand. And he smashes the cultural icon to make the point that you will not be happy even if you have all of the things I have. So let me do you a favor and help you out so that you can realize you, like me, are desperate. Desperate for meaning. If you're really honest and you level with yourself, you too will say what I say at the beginning of my book, chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher or the teacher or the, or the philosopher vanity of vanities all is vanity and as a reminder he's not using vanity in the sense that we typically use it in our culture as far as self-love what he means by that is emptiness futility and when you say futility of futilities with double emphasis you're saying it's it's ultimate it's like we say this is this is the game of all games The Super Bowl or whatever it might be. It's the ultimate game. Song of Songs is the ultimate song. Song of Solomon. And he says, Vanity of vanities. Life is emptiness of emptiness. Life is futile of futile. It's a big downer, by the way. Ecclesiastes is. And it's designed to bring us down and to show us emptiness and to show us futility so that we're left asking that question then what? Where do I look? How can I have lasting joy, meaning, meaning, and significance? Because Solomon says he looks everywhere under the sun and can't find it, which is a clue, by the way, that I've been mentioning week in and week out. We need to look outside of that sphere. Everything under the sun, we we better look above the sun, so to speak. We ultimately need God to speak. We need revelation from God that is, that is going to interpret life, that is going to translate things for us, that's going to help us to understand true significance and meaning. And what he's doing is he's teeing up this great opportunity for a great gospel opportunity to understand true wisdom, true meaning that will last forever, that is genuine. But chapter 7 is just another chapter in the darkness. So... Sorry about that. Um, someone asked me this week, they said, um, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I said, Ecclesiastes, kind of sheepishly maybe. Oh, okay. Why? Well, I was going to invite someone. <laughs> so, you know, we'll be done with Ecclesiastes in, in, you know, a couple of years and you can invite your friends again. No. Um, I'm going as fast as I can trying to do diligence and we do want all of God's counsel from His Word, and so I don't make any apology in all seriousness. Um, It really does help us to see, really, where we live, where we're enamored by celebrity, where we think if we had, then we would be happy. We wouldn't be. It's really helpful to see the darkness, just like we need to see sin, so we can see the greatness of Christ's work. You want real meaning in life? Well, let's figure out where it isn't, so we can figure out where it is then you can invite your friends let's look at ecclesiastes 7 let's break it down into three different sections it's a admittedly a hard book to outline a hard chapter to outline Uh, three words for an outline this morning that might help you if they don't help you you don't need to write them down but they might help you they've helped me Uh, the first section we'll look at let's call it demonstration let's call it demonstration first 13 verses are a demonstration of wisdom a demonstration of wisdom. It's Solomon showing us that that he's wise. He's showing us that he's the kind of guy that could write Proverbs. And therefore, he's the kind of guy you should listen to. What he's going to say has credibility because he's a sage. He's a wise person. And the first 13 verses show us his wisdom. So it's a demonstration of wisdom. Then the second heading that might help you understand chapter 7, let's use the word Evaluation. Evaluation. I might add to that and add frustrated evaluation. Uh, He reaches a frustrated evaluation. He evaluates all kinds of things. God, life, self. And that's in verses 14 to 24. There's an evaluation, 14 to 24. And then thirdly, a third word is conclusion. Conclusion in verses 25 to 29. uh, He's drawing a conclusion about humanity. Humanity um, and the corruption of humanity. And that leads him down that dark road. So demonstration of wisdom. Evaluation of God, life, self. um, and, And finally, a conclusion. All of this to, again, show us we need more. We need more. Are you with me? Ready to go? You ready to go for a downer today? I promise we'll end with Jesus, okay? Um, and it'll, it'll end on an upper in Colossians chapter 2. Um, some of you probably get really tired of me saying this, but you, you say, Pastor, I have a question. And I flippantly kind of say, Jesus is the answer. Um, it's true. <laughs> if you're asking me where, you know, this class is meeting, and I say Jesus is the answer, I understand, but... Um, you know, there's an old saying about a little kid, too, that is listening to the Sunday school teacher, and she's describing something, and, and a little boy, and, and, and who can answer my question? Who is this? And, well, I don't know, teacher. It sounds a lot like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. <laughs> um, it's just kind of how it goes sometimes. Um, and by the way, I, ho- I hope if my kids in children's church right now say the answer is Jesus, I hope the teachers are asking those kinds of questions, by the way. Um, Jesus is the answer. And when it comes to the futility of life and needing and finding ultimate wisdom that will last forever, uh, that will bring true lasting joy, it does end up being Jesus. Uh, no, uh, all flippancy aside. Um, and we'll see so in Colossians chapter 2 wonderfully um, when, we, when we come to a conclusion today. First he's going to demonstrate his wisdom first 13 verses. Let's go ahead and look at verse 1 He says a good name is better than precious ointment That sounds like proverbs uh, sounds like the writer to proverbs. That's a wise statement Uh, It's better to have a good reputation than to be rich because the the precious ointment would uh, be emblematic of wealth And so that sounds just like it would come from from the book before this Proverbs uh, the second one startles us, but it's meant to be a positive proverbial kind of thing. Look, look what it says in verse one, at the end there. And the day of death then the day of birth. Now that that right there is one we might object to. Um, doesn't really sound like a proverb to us in our 21st century kind of um, thinking and listening. Uh, try that one on a gra- this is graduation season. Try that one on a graduation card. How about that for a graduation speech? And now, at this key moment in your life, as you, you know, go on and pursue other things, I just want to tell you, I'm going to quote the Bible here. Um, the day of death is better than the day of birth. <laughs> How about that? And you say, I don't think we should have him as a speaker next time. Um, well, while, while it rubs our 21st century sensibilities the wrong way, um, maybe in wiser times it's actually... Seen as a positive thing. Remember who Solomon is. Remember the experience of all the suffering and all of the angst and all of the difficulty and all of the frustration that he's been talking about in Ecclesiastes. And so it really is meant to be a positive when he says this. The day of death is better than the day of life. What could he mean by that? Well, maybe it's because you've heard so many speeches that say, you can be anything you want to be. And you figure out pretty quickly that's not even true. And there's all kinds of promises made to you. Promises in relationships. Promises in business. Promises here. Promises there. Promises in your purchases. And oftentimes they are not true. And you're let down again and again and again and again. And there's something nice and settling about just being done with it all. No more suffering. No more pain. No more disillusionment. And that seems to be the idea there. I I think we should caution ourselves against reading this like a Christian passage, because we know when you die, you go to heaven and you see Christ. I wouldn't read Philippians into this, even though that's all true. I don't think that's what Solomon's trying to do here. As a matter of fact, earlier about death, you can write it in your margin. He said this in chapter 3, verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? I don't really know what happens when you die. Because again, he's writing this book from the perspective of someone who who doesn't know ultimate truth yet. And so this seems to be more, well, then you're you're done suffering. And that's a proverb. Then verse 2 and 3 and 4 are similar. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. How about that? It's better to go to a funeral than a party. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, once we're done objecting and we get our senses about us we might say you know what maybe he does know what he's talking about because every single one of us is going to have a funeral someday and it's healthy and helpful to know that and to be sober-minded and and to realize that might actually lead to you living your life in a, in a fitting sort of way instead of just laughing all the time and partying all the time and everything's all happy clappy life and that's not real Because life isn't all happy, clappy all the time. lets you smile all the time, even though it's real painful. He's saying you could learn something probably better at a funeral. Because it makes you think about the sobriety of life and suffering. Continue on in the same vein. Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart... Is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Or or happiness. or, 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 Or constant laughter. I think we can understand why this could be a virtuous kind of statement. Yes, he's raining on the parade a little bit. But it's sobering. Think about life differently. We like to pretend like everything's happy, so let's just do another party. But he's saying, wisdom says, let's go in eyes wide open and not pretend and live in fantasy world. That will have a better effect, ultimately, on your living. So this is supposed to, to, supposed to, to help us to see that he knows what he's talking about. Then verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Again, it rubs us the wrong way when we get rebuked. We like people to tell us everything we want to hear. But he's saying, look, this this is what's wise. Verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot we don't use that phrase anymore. It would have been common then, apparently. It's something irritating. It's something startling. It's something you don't like. It's not When you're, you're making your breakfast over the open fire, you don't like big you know, uh, sparks flying and, and startling kinds of explosions. That's something you, you bugs you. It bothers you. So is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. You know, the jovial laughing spirit at the wrong time. Somebody who's always laughing about everything. And the reality is life isn't all a big joke. Seems to be what he's getting at here. And then he says in verse 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Which is pretty interesting. He's, he's questioning now even wisdom. At least a little bit. A little bit of doubt on wisdom. And he's going to throw a lot about, of doubt on wisdom in just a little while. And a bribe corrupts the heart. The heart of a wise man. So, so wise people, even though he thinks wisdom is good, it's not going to be the ultimate answer. It's not bulletproof. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. What do you suppose that means? The end of a thing than the beginning. And then he uses patience versus arrogance or pride. Pride. Well, if you are patient, you know and wait for the outcome and you see how it is before you make grand pronouncements. It's like in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 20 verse 11 where it talks about, you know, the one who should be celebrating is not the one who's putting his armor on going to battle. They haven't even done the battle yet. It should be the one celebrating who's taking the armor off. They are the victor. And so he's making the wise statement. Instead of people who are all bragging and and proud about their great accomplishments when the game hasn't even started yet, they haven't graduated yet or whatever it might be, it's a lot better to have humility and and wait for celebration later. Again, these are the words of a sage, the words of a wise man. Verse 9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? That one kind of hurts because we, we talk like that. What do we say? Remember the, the good old days. He says, don't, don't say that. Well, why would he say that? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Hmm, kind of puzzling. He seems to be making the point. They they really weren't that good. You're just remembering the good parts. They had their complications too. And remember, he has already said there's nothing new under the sun. It's not like they were really the good old days. People were the same. Nothing new under the sun. It's unrealistic. Verse 11 Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. What he means by that is no doubt those who are still alive. It's good to have wisdom when you inherit money. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. It's very valuable, wisdom is. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? What would the answer to that be? No one. You can't undo the work of God beyond your control. You're wasting your time. Now again, we had to kind of work through going from ancient culture to 21st century. But imagine yourself in the shoes of original hearers and you say, whoever this guy is, if he has more to say, I'm going to listen. This guy shows that he's got some gray hair. Maybe he's, he's missing some hair. Point being, he's lived life he understands some things well not only that this is solomon he 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 knows what he's talking about when it comes to money he's got all kinds of it he's the wise guy he knows what he's doing and so now we're supposed to be whether or not it's hard for you to be or not we're drawn in what kind of evaluation does he make when it comes to meaning in life he's shown himself to be so wise Okay, let's move on now to evaluation, a frustrated evaluation about life, self, God. Verse 14 to 24. Look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. That makes sense. And in the day of adversity, when things aren't going your way, when you're having a a bad year, a bad decade, whatever it might be, a bad day. just, Just think about this. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Hmm. I, I might want my money back from the seminar. He seemed to have all the qualifications and that, that's kind of an interesting way to evaluate things. You know, when, when things are going well, be happy. When things aren't going well, just know this theologically. Here's what I've concluded based upon all my observations god is in charge of both and uh he doesn't really tell us why things happen the way they do this isn't the first time that solomon's been frustrated with god and i think it would be appropriate for us to see this as a frustration he's figured out god is sovereign god is in charge he's figured out he's not and you can figure that out by the way without the bible okay you can figure that out without the Bible, that you're not in charge of things, no matter how powerful you are. And if you believe in a God, as this writer does, you can say, you know what? He's in charge, I'm not in charge, and you cannot be okay with it. You can be a little bugged by it. He's been bugged before in this book. His evaluation about God is, 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 is he's not altogether pleased. Then, in verses 15 and following, there's a good dose of cynicism. In light of what he concludes in verse 14, he gets pretty cynical. Look at verse 15 where he says, In my vain, in my futile, in my meaningless life, I've seen everything. You know, I'm I'm frustrated about this God who, who seems to be in charge of everything, and this is bothersome to me, and in my life I've seen everything, and let me tell you what I've seen from this God. Verse 15 continues on. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. That's offensive to me, he's saying. I've seen it. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. What kind of God is this? The the righteous should have the blessings and the unrighteous should have the cursings. and, And you know what I've seen in my life? I've seen that that's not always the case. I've seen the opposite of what I think is right. That's my evaluation of this God. What is God doing? Why is he doing this? This is frustrating in my vain life. My life would have a lot more meaning if everything worked out the way it would seem supposed to be. And so he gives some pretty jaded advice. His advice in verse 16 is, okay, here's my conclusion. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And that doesn't sound like very biblical advice. I, the, people, some, some folks um, that I would respect have worked really hard to make that a positive thing. I think in the flow of things, I don't think it's very positive. I mean, it's a far cry from Leviticus or 1 Peter saying, uh, quoting God saying, Be holy for I am holy. The standard is righteousness. We break the standard, but the standard is righteousness. And so I'm going to call you to righteousness. Writer to Ecclesiastes says, you know what? Don't be too holy. Don't be too righteous. And don't be too bad. Be balanced in life. What I've observed is you'll have a better life that way. Don't, Don't be an extremist. That sounds like advice you might hear from someone who doesn't have a Bible Or doesn't know what the Bible says. Doesn't have revelation from God outside of what they can see with their eyes and hear with their ears. You know what? A little good is good and a little bad is bad. You know, have a balanced life. And that's the advice at this point in time. Verse 18 says, it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand. You should really do what I'm saying here. You should really embrace this. This is right. And here's why. It says, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. One translation puts it this way. If you fear God, you'll be successful anyway. Kind of interesting. If that's a right translation, I think it is. You know, religion's going to help you in the end anyway. You know what you can do is be kind of righteous, kind of not. But in the end it's going to be okay. It's just I think he's using fear God in a general sense. Just be a religious person and he'll take care of the balance. This is an interesting evaluation. That's his jaded advice. Verse 19 says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man far more than ten rulers who are in a city. Well, that, that that seems, that's true, that's good, That that's a wise statement, that's a good evaluation. But look at the counterbalance, it's not meant to be taken out of context. None of these verses should be taken out of context, or you can make it say all sorts of things. Verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So look what he did. In verse 19, he talks about the the benefits and the positive nature of wisdom. But in a sense, what he gives with one hand, he takes away with the other hand. Because in the next verse, in verse 20, he says, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So wisdom is good, but you know what? Sin is pervasive, even amongst wise people. Some people even wonder if Paul had this verse, verse 20, at least somewhere in his mind when he's writing Romans. He's dead on in that verse. He's not dead on in all of these things, in his sage musings. But verse 21 supports his point. How about this? Verse 20 could be a tough one to swallow. You say, what? Everyone is sinful? Is that your evaluation? How about verse 21? Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Makes me kind of snicker. You know, don't listen too carefully to what other people are saying. Because if you do, you might hear your servant, who you pay to be loyal to you, talking bad about you. And why would he say that unless that's a real possibility? And he's using that as the point that everybody sins. So be careful. Don't listen too closely to even those who are close to you. Because you're going to hear him saying something bad about you. Proving my point that they're sinful. Oh, and by the way, let's keep proving the point. Look at verse 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Oh, and while you're at it, it's not just those who are close to you who prove my point that they're sinful, they're unrighteous. You prove my point that you're unrighteous. You're like those servants because you've spoken evilly of other people. His evaluation now is getting really low and really dark because it's not just about circumstances outside of us. We've met the enemy (laughs) We've met the problem, and the problem is us. You know what I've found in life as a sage? People are a problem. And you and I should think about this. You know, all of the turmoil that is caused in our life, and all of the difficulties, so many, 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 many times, comes down to people issues. People around us issues, self people issues. This is a reason why life is futility of futilities because people aren't good. And so we have conflict, brokenness, chafing. So we don't look for ultimate lasting meaning in the here and now, whether it's here or with those around us. It's going to let you down and prove empty every time. I find verse 22 is 21 and 22 very thought-provoking in that sense. Then verse 23 says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That is, is just an awful admission for a philosopher to make. He, he, his life has been about wisdom. And what's his conclusion right there in verse 23? I, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That, that would be fitting to put on the gravestone of every philosopher. I will be wise, it was far from me. That's, that's really helpful. devastating finality someone put it this way it could be the epitaph the writing on the grave for every philosopher and we can set it out in that form suitably urn shaped here are your ashes failure at wisdom Verse 24 says, that which has been far off and deep and very deep, who can find it out? You know, In the context here, it's just this, oh, oh, I can't do it. I've given my life to this. People think I know the answers. They've come from Egypt to hear me speak. And I can't do it. They think I'm a success. I am the cultural icon. And here's what my tombstone should read failure. And so again, think about your cultural icons. The athlete that you, if you just had their ability, then you would be satisfied. And then you'd be on top of the world and you'd be happy and you'd have everything you need to have. You'd be set for life. You are so foolish to think that. And so am I. The musician. If I could be that guy, everyone chanting his or her name. Oh, and if I could have what they have, or if I could have so-and-so's youth, or if I could have so-and-so's health, if I could have so-and-so's intellect and mind and be able to write books like that and publish those kinds of books, I would have so much influence. And then I would be happy if I had their money. And Solomon is saying, you are such an idiot. You're so stupid. Let me tell you, the end is better than the beginning. You can't be anything you want to be in life if it means being happy and successful with what you accomplish, because in the end, it will all fail you. Happy graduation. (laughs) You know? One of my friends told me that they heard a graduation speech, you know, the the, the pastor guy reading Ecclesiastes and totally reading it out of context. Basically, you know, you could be anything you want to be. And um, You know, Ecclesiastes is such a downer. If I got asked to speak at it, I I wouldn't because they would never invite me back. Um, Or maybe I would. (laughs) Who do you esteem most? Who's the coolest guy you can imagine? The celebrity of celebrities. We all look up to people. There's nothing wrong with looking up to people. You know what the best thing in your life might be? Is if you could actually get to know that person. And smell their bad breath. Or fast forward in their life when they're in the nursing home. And can't go to the bathroom by themselves. And nobody's singing their praises. Or you name it. It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. It will fail you. Conclusion regarding human corruption is the last section, verses 25 to 29. 25 says, I turn my heart to know. Notice the, the, the tenacity, the passion. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom. He's so eager. He's so earnest. He's so passionate. And the scheme of things, that is the meaning of things. The plan of things, how things work, how they fit together, and to know the wickedness. Okay, I'm gonna go in the negative direction too, and to know the wickedness of, of folly. Maybe if I, I, I can't, I can't really know wisdom unless I go that direction too. The wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. I couldn't have been more committed. Verse 26, and I find something more bitter than death. Which, by the way, in the light of Ecclesiastes is a pretty big deal because Solomon has already shown himself to be pretty bitter about death. He's pretty bothered by the reality of death. And I, I, now I'm saying, I found something more bitter than even death. And he says, the woman whose heart is snares and nets. Now we're talking about people being the problem. And whose hands are fetters or Chains. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. More about that in a moment. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found. Here's my conclusion, says the preacher or the sage or the the counselor or the scholar, the professor is the idea, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things meaning of life is what he means, verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found one man among a thousand I found. Now, let's talk about relationships. I found one man out of a thousand who, who I could trust, who, who I thought was morally upright would be the idea, but a woman among all these I have not found. Ooh, I don't believe I would have said that. Um. <laughs> Before this guy gets even home to his house after writing this in his uh, library or whatever, he is in so much trouble. Um, anyway, verse 29, we'll get to the seriousness in a second, but 29 says, See this alone I found, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Before we get to the semi-temporarily controversial part about the comparison, he's making the simple point. God made people good. I could figure that much out. But the reality is, people aren't good. What has happened? I think I could explain so much. If I could just explain this, he's not explaining it here. He's just saying, evaluation is, he's already gone there. Everybody's unrighteous. No one is perfect, even the wisest people. And when I search a thousand friends, I can only think of one. And by the way, he's already said that everyone is unrighteous. So even that one has to get thrown under the bus eventually. And when I I think of of girlfriends, women, wives, I can't think of any. Can't think of any. Now back to that, I don't think I would have said that. Um, One reason I wouldn't have said that is because I have not had as many wives as Solomon. Let's cut the guy a little bit of a break. Okay? He was ungodly and stupid enough to have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of wives. So maybe we can understand why he needs a little bit of extra therapy. And he says things like he says here, you know? I can't think of a single woman. I can think of one friend who's close still, you know? But he, he has issues. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to look it up now, but First Kings chapter 11 verses 1 to 3 talk about his many wives um, and his disobedience to God. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his, his wives turned away his heart. So that probably helps us understand the context a little bit better. But verse 20 already told us in our chapter, there's, there's, there's not a single righteous person, man or woman. I like where he goes, just to help fill in the picture. Because he goes to humanity. He goes to the us. Life is futile. Life is fleeting. Can't find true happiness. He's talked about money. He's talked about power. He's talked about wisdom. He's talked about all those things. And now he's talking about relationships. And he's talking about human beings. And certainly he himself is included in the mix. It causes us to be left with, then what? What? Then what? Then what do we say to our kids who are graduates? What do we say to our kids when they're talking about, I want to be this when I grow up and I want to be that when I grow up? What do we say to ourselves when we want to grow up? What is it? If wisdom isn't the answer, then what is the answer? Wisdom. Colossians 2 would tell us wisdom is the answer. It's just a different kind of wisdom. Not wisdom under the sun. We need to move beyond this fear. We need God to talk to us and to say, this is what life is about. Oh, by the way, this is why people do let you down. This is why the conflicts. This is why the emptiness. And oh, by the way, and this is my solution. It's Colossians chapter 2. It's amazingly Colossians chapter 2. And so we, we go through all of this downer time for a great uptime when we see that wisdom actually is the answer. It's just a different kind of wisdom. We need God to speak not just through what we can observe. We need a word from God. Colossians chapter 2 is, is excellent to help us under, understand this. Even to understand depravity because Christ is the answer to our depravity, therefore relationships. And in Colossians two two. After he says that their hearts may be encouraged and all of that, I really want you to center in on the, the latter half. Here's what I underline in Colossians 2.2. 2. The knowledge, talking about Jesus, the knowledge of God's mystery. So really, knowledge really is the solution. It's just a different kind of knowledge. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Notice he's using revelation terminology. Solomon paid attention to all this general revelation through creation and and he couldn't figure it out. He's just frustrated. But now what we need is supernatural revelation. We, we We need revelation from God. We need the word of God. We need Christ, the word incarnate. And here we have him, which is Christ. Verse 3, in whom, see it's in him, in Christ, that's the answer, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's this absolutely amazing kind of statement regarding Christ Jesus. Do you want to know how to figure it all out? You want to know how to go from looking at everything in life, from relationships to wisdom to money to learning to whatever it is, and saying, futility of futility. We'd be better off dead. You want to go from there to saying, everything under the sun I can make some sense out of, including the depravity, including the brokenness, and I can understand things not only understand things, but I can understand the problems and I can understand the solution to the problems. It is Christ Jesus. It most certainly is Christ Jesus. He is the wisdom. He is the knowledge. And what does He do? He comes here to this earth, into this world, and what does God say? He's my son. Listen to Him. In Him I'm well pleased. How about Hebrews chapter 1? I can't help but keep going there. Hebrews chapter 1, that God has spoken in all these various ways. And then it says, in these last days, meaning in these climactic days, where we were always anticipating, even when Solomon was writing, in these last, final, culminating, anticipated days, he's spoken to us, he's revealed himself. We're needing revelation, right? He's spoken to us through his Son. Oh, true knowledge of God, through his Son. Now it makes so much more sense. The whole Bible makes more sense. I can understand that he's the depravity solution. That's in Colossians. It's in Ephesians. It's in Romans. Yeah, broken world. No one one is righteous. No, not one. Christ Jesus, who is the righteous one, who came to fulfill all righteousness. I mean, everything just starts... fitting together, and you say, this is amazing. It's as if somebody had a plan, had a purpose. (laughs) That the darkness was here for a reason in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it is there for a reason. That we would see the grandeur and the glory and the majesty, the unmatched wisdom in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. You want to make sense of life? It's got to be through the lens, through the sphere, through the picture of Christ making sense. The broken relationships, there's optimism. Because of reconciliation to God through Christ, oh, now we have opportunity for reconciliation in the here and now. I mean, the list goes on but I don't think we're ever going to see the greatness of Christ as the knowledge and wisdom of God so that we can see things and make sense of things and actually be able to live life in a way that is truly, genuinely meaningful with real joy amidst the garbage unless we see Christ. And oh, by the way, in the here and now, because Jesus didn't come and now all of a sudden we don't have anything hard anymore. Not only do we have Jesus coming a first time, we have Jesus coming a second time, and Romans 8 talks about that. That he will fix all of the temporary hardship that we're going through now, but that's tied to his work as well. I can make sense out of suffering in the here and now. And so can you. And you don't have to be, life sucks and then you die. Which is 21st century version of Ecclesiastes. You don't have to be that guy. You don't have to be that Gal, I understand why bad things are in this world. I understand why bad things happen. I understand where there is freedom in understanding. I understand where there's a solution to all of this. And it causes me to want to persevere through the hardship, even though the hardship isn't gone. And I'm thankful for that. I'm praying that Ecclesiastes makes you more thankful for that, that we would be better Christians, more faithful and more in love with Christ because of the futility, the knowledge of the futility of of life without Christ. Pray with me if you would. Father in heaven, we, we plead with you, we beg you, we ask of you to help us to see just how miserable we are even if we don't know it. And if we don't know it, help us to see how miserable we are as we watch icon after icon crash and burn. We don't wish uh, ill upon them, but we know it's going to happen. So help us to see it for what it is. And even as we watch ourselves crash and burn, as we try to work harder to be more successful, as we try to eat better to be healthier, As We try to do a better job at saving, only to lose it all one day. Lord, some of these things are very wise. But we will not find ultimate happiness and joy and peace in these things. Help us to see that. To see that ultimately, at the end of the day, when everything is vaporized, that significance is over only and forever going to be found in Christ Jesus. Make us men and women and boys and girls who understand this so that we might have joy that is a joy unshakable. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.